Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast where we do things the Hemingway. Talking about Book 6, Chapter 12. Uh, What do you make of the situation between Natasha and Boris? What do you think Boris should do? And what do you think are in Helena's letters to Boris? That's a very personal question. (laughs) I don't think we want to know. Um... It's um, Natasha and Boris. I think. Um, wait, what happened? Did he find out that she doesn't have money? Is that what happened in the last chapter? Oh yeah, that is. But then, and then he was like, "Okay, so I'll just have to, you know, tell her I won't be around much anymore." And that's all good. I'll just go over there now and I'll tell them. And then he went there and hung out for a few days and then left without having told her. And then he went back for a few days and didn't tell her. And he just kept going back and hanging out with her and not telling her. So I think he's a bit smitten. It's not the first one to be smitten with young Natasha. Karaka Kikas says, When he mentioned Helena's letters to Boris, all I could imagine are unanswered text messages. Helena, hey Boris, you up? Helena, I'm having a salon tomorrow. You coming? Helena. W2EF, where are you? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It's so weird that... How long did it take, you know? Pierre has apologised to his wife and taken her back in and tried to be the bigger person. And what was it, ten minutes later? She's already got this, like, toy boy. (laughs) Who, again, is friends with Pierre. What a terrible, terrible person. Warren Kovofi says, I love how just about everyone who meets Natasha is spellbound by her personality and beauty. Boris appeared to have everything figured out, but Natasha might be throwing a wrench into the whole thing. I'll be curious to see how Helena reacts. Without her boy toy behind the scenes, her peace with Pierre might be in jeopardy. Um, you know, it is a shame that we haven't had more time with Helena. You know, we just see her as this... Un, well, not ungrateful may not be the word, but just unfaithful wife who's kind of almost cruel in her um, infidelity. Cruel about it. And so, but we don't see it from her point of view. There might be something going on in her head that maybe explains the way she is. I don't think you can really justify it, but it's always good to see someone's point of view. Um, anyway, let's keep reading. Chapter 13. Again, Pierre was overtaken by the depression he so dreaded. For three days after the delivery of his speech at the lodge, he lay on a sofa at home receiving no one and going nowhere. It was just then that he received a letter from his wife who implored him to see her, telling him how grieved she was about him and how she wished to devote her whole life to him. At the end of the letter, she informed him that in a few days she would return to Petersburg from abroad. Following this letter, one of the Masonic brothers, whom Pierre respected less than the others, forced his way in to see him, and turning the conversation upon Pierre's matrimonial affairs... Wait, I feel like I've... I feel like I'm... Am I reading the wrong chapter? We've read this before, haven't we? I think I may be reading the wrong chapter. What are we up to? Book 6, chapter 13. Book 6, 13. Oh no. Um. No, 
that we've read that before, haven't we? Am I crazy or what? I think the link might be wrong then. Book four, five, six. Chapter 12. Uh, he left off visiting Helena and received reproachful notes from her every day. I don't know why this is wrong. I'm so confused right now. We're up to book six, chapter 11. I'm clicking on book six, chapter 11, and it's taking me to the wrong thing. Ah. <laughs> chapter 13. Uh, I'm, click I'm clicking on eight. I'm clicking on eight because I'm a dum-dum. All right. My bad. <laughs> Oh God! I was click. It's in Roman numerals, you see. I was clicking clicking on V I I I, and what I needed to be clicking on is X I I I. All right, let's try that again. Chapter thirteen goes like this: One night, when the old countess, in nightcap and dressing jacket, without her false curls and with her poor little knob of hair showing under her white cotton cap, knelt, sighing and groaning on a rug and bowing to the ground in prayer, her door creaked, and Natasha also in a dressing gown, dressing jacket, sorry, with slippers on her bare feet and her hair in curl papers ran in. The countess, her prayerful mood dispelled, looked round and frowned. She was finishing her last prayer. Can it be that this couch will be my grave? Natasha flushed and eager, seeing her mother in prayer, suddenly checked her rush, half sat down and unconsciously put out her tongue as if chiding herself. Seeing that her mother was still praying, she ran on tiptoe to the bed and rapidly slipping one little foot against the other, pushed off her slippers and jumped onto the bed the countess had feared might become her grave. This couch was high, with a feather bed and five pillows, each smaller than the one below. Natasha jumped on it, sank into the feather bed, rolled over to the wall and began snuggling up to the bedclothes as she settled down, raising her knees to her chin, kicking out and laughing almost inaudibly now covering herself up head and all, and now peeping at her mother. The Countess finishing, finished her prayers and came to bed with a stern face, but seeing that Natasha's head was covered, she smiled in her kind, weak way. Now then, now then, she said, Mama, can we have a talk? Yes, said Natasha. Now just one on your throat and another, that'll do. And seizing her mother round the neck, she kissed her on the throat, in her behaviour to her mother, Natasha seemed rough, but she was so sensitive and tactful that however she clasped her mother, she always managed to do it without hurting her or making her feel uncomfortable or displeased. Well, what is it tonight? said the mother, having arranged her pillows and waited until Natasha, after turning over a couple of times, had settled down beside her under the quilt, spread out her arms and assumed a serious expression. These visits of Natasha's at night, before the Count returned from his club, were one of the greatest pleasures of both mother and daughter. What is it tonight? But I have to tell you. Natasha put her hand on her mother's mouth. About Boris, I know, she said seriously. That's what I have come about. Don't say it, I know. No, do tell me. And she removed her hand. Tell me, Mama, he's nice. Natasha, you are sixteen. At your age I was married. You say Boris is nice. He is very nice, and I love him like a son, but what then? What are you thinking about? You have quite turned his head, I can see that. 
As she said this, the Countess looked round at her daughter. Natasha was lying, looking steadily but straight before her at one of the mahogany sphinxes carved on the corners of the bedstead, so that the Countess only saw her daughter's face in profile. That face struck her by its peculiarly serious and concentrated expression. Natasha was listening and considering. Well, what then? said she. You have quite turned his head, and why? Do you want him? You know you can't marry him. Why not? said Natasha, without changing her position. Because he is young, because he is poor, because he is a relation, and because you yourself don't love him. How do you know? I know. It's not right, darling. But if I want to, said Natasha. Leave off with talking nonsense, said the Countess. But if I want to. Natasha, I am in earnest. Natasha did not let her finish. She drew the Countess's large hand to her, kissed it on the back and then on the palm, then again turned it over and began kissing first one knuckle, then the space between the knuckles, then the next knuckle, whispering, January, February, March, April, May. Speak, Mama. Why don't you say anything? Speak, said she, turning to her mother, who was tenderly gazing at her daughter, and in that contemplation seemed to have forgotten all she wished to say. It won't do, my love. Not everyone will understand this friendship dating from your childish days and to see him so intimate with you may injure you in the eyes of other young men who visit us, and above all it torments him for nothing. He may have already found a suitable and wealthy match, and now he's half crazy. Crazy? repeated Natasha. I'll tell you some things about myself. I had a cousin. I know, Cyril Matovich, but she is old. She was not always old, but this is what I'll do, Natasha. I'll have a talk with Boris. He need not come so often. Why not, if he likes to? Because I know it will end in nothing. How can you know? No, Mama, don't speak to him. What nonsense, said Natasha, in the tone of one being deprived of her property. Well, I won't marry, but let him come if he enjoys it, and I enjoy it. Natasha smiled and looked at her mother. Not to marry, but just so, she added. How so, my pet? Just so. There's no need for me to marry him, but just so. Just so, just so, repeated the Countess, and shaking all over, she went off into the, into a good-humoured, unexpected, elderly laugh. Don't laugh. Stop, cried Natasha. You're shaking the whole bed. You're awfully like me, just such another giggler. Wait. And she seized the Countess's hands and kissed a knuckle of the little finger, saying June, and continued kissing July, August. On the other hand, but Mama, is he very much in love? What do you think? Was anybody ever so much in love with you? And he's very nice, very, very nice. Only not quite my taste. He is so narrow, like the dining room clock. Don't you understand? Narrow, you know, grey, light grey. What rubbish you're talking, said the Countess. Natasha continued, Don't you really understand? Nicholas would understand. Bezikov now is blue, dark blue and red, and he is a square. You flirt with him too, said the Countess, laughing. No, he is a Freemason, I've found out. He is fine, dark blue and red. How can I explain it to you? Little Countess, the Count's voice called from behind the door. You're not asleep? Natasha jumped up, snatched up her slippers and ran barefoot to her own room. It was a long time before she could sleep. She kept thinking that no one could understand all that she understood and all there was in her. Sonia, she thought. Oh, Sonia, she thought, glancing at that curled-up, sleeping little kitten with her enormous plait of hair. No, how could she? She's virtuous. She fell in love with Nicholas and does not wish to know anything more. Even Mamma does not understand. It is wonderful how clever I am and how charming she is. 
She went on speaking of herself in the third person and imagining it was some very wise man, the wisest and best of men, who was saying it of her. There is everything, everything in her, continued this man. She is unusually intelligent, charming, and then she is pretty, uncommonly pretty and agile. She swims and rides splendidly, and her voice, one can really say it's a wonderful voice. She hummed a scrap from her favourite opera by Cherubini, threw herself on her bed, laughed at the pleasant thought she, that she would immediately fall asleep, called Dunshire the maid to put out the candle, and before Dunshire had left the room and already passed into yet another happier world of dreams, where everything was light and beautiful as in reality, and even more so because it was different. Next day the Countess called Boris aside and had a talk with him, after which he ceased coming to the Rostovs. All right, there you go, another chapter down. A little bit of a rejection for Boris. Probably for the best. Maybe. Who knows? All right, guys, have your say about it over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.